Leaving Texas, fourth day of July. Sun so hot, the clouds so low, the eagles fill the sky. Hands the Detroit, Lighter Dallas, Santa Fe. Hi everybody, this is Brett. Today is Friday, May 29th, and if you're new around here, every Friday I like to do uh, a free bonus for the podcast audience. We have an expansive bonus content section at schoolsucksproject.com that includes regular monthly productions like In Pursuit of Utopia, a historical series that I previewed for you last Friday, and uh, one of my favorite things to do, one of my favorite productions I've ever had the privilege of being involved with picture of the month club and uh, i'm going to give you the first 45 minutes of a two-hour show in this audio our most recent film is the cohen brothers 2007 oh genre that's a tough one because you know you say the genre of the film what genre is no country for old men it's tricky it starts out you're pretty sure you're watching a western but then you start to get messed with Previous installments of Picture of the Month Club include Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy, Mad Max Fury Road, American Psycho, Terminator 2, and Boogie Nights. So I put this up yesterday, maybe Wednesday, in the School Sucks group, and one of the comments was from my friend and fellow podcaster Nick Picone. You might remember Nick from episode 600 of School Sucks. He was the host of Music and Liberty. He's kind of rebranded that show. It is now called Peace Freaks, F-R-E-Q-S. And he also hosts another show called Free Markets Green Earth. But he leaves a comment. My instinct is that I'm going to be bored to tears through this, but I'm giving you both the benefit of the doubt. So I checked back in with him and I said, Nick, uh, how did that No Country for Old Men show work out for you? He said, far more interesting than the movie. And that's quite a compliment, even though he didn't mean for it to be, because I found this movie utterly captivating. I just watched it for the first time right before we recorded. And of course, if you decide you want the whole audio or all the other episodes of Picture in the Month Club or any of the bonus productions we have done, you can go to patreon.com slash school sucks, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash school sucks. Sign up to contribute $1 per content item. It really helps the show and it gets you access to, oh gosh, some of the best, some of the best stuff I've ever done. I want more people to experience these pleasures. And all I ask in return for the experiencing of such pleasures is uh, you help us keep the show going and growing by contributing on a monthly basis. So, uh, man, my co-host Dutch is really on fire in this one. I had only seen it once. I should have watched it three or four times before doing this, but his insights really just blew me away, and he carried the show, I thought, really nicely. And I hope all of you 
will listen to this. And when it cuts off at 45 minutes, you'll go to Patreon, sign up to support us, and jump 45 minutes into the full show and just continue listening until the magnificent ending. It took an especially long time to pick music for this one. That's it, and uh, the helicopters are here now, so I better get going. Okay, corrals just yonder. Oh, hell's bells. They even shot the dog. Well, this is just a deal gone wrong, isn't it? Yeah. Appears to have been a glitch or two. What calibers you got there, Sheriff? Nine millimeter. A couple of 45 ACPs. Somebody unloaded on that thing with a shotgun. How come you reckon the coyote thing been at him? I don't know. Supposedly a coyote won't eat a Mexican. These boys appear to be managerial. I think we're looking at more than one fracas. Execution here, Wild West over there. It's that Mexican brown dope. Oh, these boys is all swole up. So this was earlier, getting set to trade. And whoa, differences. You know, might not even have been no money. That's possible. But you don't believe it. <laughs> no. Probably I don't. Well, it's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. Ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. You go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. If I don't come back, you tell Mother I love her. Your mother's dead. 
Well, then I'll tell her myself. Got a loose cannon here. You think this boy Moss has got any notion of the sorts of dead are hunting him? I don't know. He ought to. He's seen the same things I've seen, and it certainly made an impression on me. Just how dangerous is he? Compared to what? The bubonic plague? The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's just all out war. You can't stop what's coming. Is this guy supposed to be the ultimate badass? You don't understand. picture here another month another picture another gathering of friends you know someday we got to start streaming these live make this a real club yeah i think so i think i'm tempted a q a an occasional q a about the films you know i'm sure there would be plenty of people that would hop on there and be like you're wrong about your interpretation of this um the movies they're documents onto themselves like you can interpret it however you please um which is a lot of what i want to talk about today Movies usually don't come with a glossary to explain what it meant, and I think that is part of the magic. I totally agree. Can you think of an example where a director, an auteur, rose up and said, hey, everybody is saying that this means this, and they're all wrong, and they need to stop? I can't think of an example. It doesn't really happen, or, or think about it this way, too. Is like, have you ever had um, a compendium to, like, a film written by the director that was like here is a supplemental work like a book or a um an essay being like this is uh this is the these are the even the keys to understanding the film properly it doesn't happen i think it's i I think i think if it were it would lose its magic and its um wide appeal and any kind of meaning of a personal connection you think about it this way you could watch a movie and connect with it and totally misunderstand it quote unquote Right? Yeah. And I think that if you were to completely misinterpret it because there isn't there's an objective reading of the movie, you'd just feel stupid about yourself and you wouldn't want to watch it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there, there's right. a, you wouldn't want to partake in that exercise even to know if you were right or wrong, because then you're just maybe just completely depriving yourself of something that you loved. You're taking a movie and making it a math class, basically. You're losing all the adventure. Yeah. And, you know, I have some, some inside tracks on things where like, even, you know, I'll read, I don't do it anymore. I don't read reviews, but there was a point in time I I used to read reviews and um, there was a movie that came out the same year as this year filmed in the same place. 
Um, and everybody had these kind of very, very specific takes about what the movie was about outside of the story of the movie. It's like, you know, the movie is really about this, like um, political philosophy and X, Y, and Z, right? Mm. I met some people involved in the project and uh, in different capacities, and I asked them the same question. I said, you know, every review I read said the movie was about this thing. Um, but when I watch the movie, I don't see it. And the answer unanimously every time from every party that I spoke to involved was, well, it's not that because that isn't what the movie is about. That's someone's interpretation of the movie. And I don't know where people get that, but it's become like the most popular interpretation of the movie. And you realize that, I mean, that helped me realize, like, um, I think it's empowering of like how valid and how real my interpretation of the movie was as compared to like a group of a consensus of like film critic experts. And I was like, Oh, I think these guys are wrong. And then ask people that like worked on the movie and were intimate with the movie. Like, Hey, are these people all wrong? And they were like, yes, absolutely. They're wrong. I can tell you for a fact because I made this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to say what movie it is. Nah, I mean, it's, and it's not only just one movie. This is like, you know, films I've worked on where I've read like really long and really self-assured reviews right? and an analysis of like, this is what the movie is about. This is one that I wanted to talk about even today with this movie is, a, is this thing I see happening again and again. And it's some really good ones for this movie out there. Um, but I find the concept enraging and they're really popular. So I don't want to disparage them too much because there is a demand for this, but it's like, you know, no country for old men explained on YouTube, you know, or it's like, I've worked on movies where I have these channels or not even channels, but these clips on YouTube come up. They're like, this is an explanation of the movie, whatever the movie is. And there are films that I have worked on that I have like really intimate knowledge about like, why the director made the movie, why the director, what was the director was trying to say, like what the scenes like are about, you know? Yeah. And I watch these things and I'm like, oh man, this couldn't be more off. Um, and not to say that they're always like that, but it's this weird thing of trying to claim, it's not my explanation of No Country for Old Men. It's the explanation. For this movie in particular, there's a lot of No Country for Old Men explained, not my explanation of No Country for Old Men. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to, you know, I've, I, I've only ever seen this film once and I saw it Friday night. And I, in these shows, I like to try and stay away from that. And the furthest that I'll go is if there's a nice Charlie Rose, right? Like for American yeah. Psycho, there was a nice Charlie Rose interview with uh, Brad Easton Ellis, uh, the director, and uh, Christian Bale. Uh, there was one for this with uh, Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin and the Coen brothers. So I watched that, but it wasn't super revealing. And there wasn't a lot of that, like speculation or examination. It was more just talk about the process. And I, I, I like that. And it's a way to just kind of engage like a little bit, a little bit deeper than, than watching the film, but not going down all of these, these rabbit holes about it. And, and really just like it, it doing this show, because it's either watching movies for the first time or watching it. It seems like it always works out to be seeing movies that I haven't seen in a, in a long time with new eyes. So to really, really be attentive 
to the actual film watching process and also going into No Country for Old Men, which I couldn't believe I had never seen. I could, it's inexcusable, but knowing that it was a Coen Brothers film and knowing that there are certain like uh, trademarks in, in Coen Brothers stories and there's a certain worldview and maybe oftentimes a kind of cynicism. So if you know the beats that they like to hit over and over again, it, it helps with the process of watching this movie. So I would say this is, this is also a conversation about how to watch movies or how to optimize movie watching to like really process it the best you can, even in just one viewing. Yeah, I guess all of the episodes of this project um, are things that I've really enjoyed as works in and of themselves. Um, and I thought the the Boogie Night show that we did was really a really really strong one. And I also, in some sense, I'm like, all right, so tonight's is like a really complicated and very like open film. And there are like, which this is going to sound funny because we'll get into this, but there are like rules to the film that are outlined in the film, you know? Yeah. yeah. But I don't, I want to try the best we can tonight to not get into trying to fully explain the movie, but a little bit more of what you're talking about is just like how to watch the movie. There's so many beautiful elements of like repetition and mirroring in this film. Yeah. In a visual sense where it's like, you know, all you have to understand from like a a deeper understanding of the movie is that there is a reason why these things are repeated. And the end of that is for you to draw your, like draw your conclusion from what has been laid out before you. I had this idea in my head and I was trying to interpret this film and there's so much to be said. And like, we could really get into this like long unpacking of it. And then, I thought to myself, like, oh, man, this is going to be like a four-hour show of going bit by bit. Like, this is what this reinforces, and this is what this reinforces. And I said, you know what? Let's play it loose tonight, Brett. Yeah, I love that idea. It was like our Mad Max episode where it was like, let's just, well, this this movie's all about the feels. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a good movie to be all about the feels, but in a really just in a different way because it's really grim and meditative. It's just like meditation on life and death and like the risk you take by living life. And it's, um, I gotta say, I've watched it twice now in the past few weeks uh, as, as something I've been using as a bit of like inspiration and also research for another project. It beats me up pretty darn good when I think about this movie. Um, so maybe instead of beating our, ourselves up we'll we'll focus on the filmmaking and the repetition and the language in this movie which i think is really really strong and let people have a good time taking taking from the film what they will yeah absolutely and it it is it is a good film for practicing the close watching of a film the coen brothers have i think a lot of respect for the viewers you have to kind of pay careful attention. We don't have to, but it's helpful to pay careful attention to like how characters are developed or how the plot is sort of unfolded. So I watched the movie once through Friday night, first viewing ever, like I said. And then, you know, in in preparation for the production of this show, I went to like pull some clips and I watched some scenes again and noticed many things that I did not notice the first time. And I was like, oh, okay. Now, of course, all of the scenes, like I had to rewatch all of the uh, 
Anton Chigurh scenes, who is the villain in the in the film, and noticed a lot of things about his portrayal, his decision making, his presentation, and and there's lots of other examples like that as they relate to both character and plot. And I think that's another one of those those Coen Brothers uh, trademarks. We want to do the the plot the best we can. Yeah, I think that's worth it. And I think that this is actually plot wise is probably the easiest movie that we've done, uh, maybe outside of Mad Max. But yeah, you want to go for it? Sure. Yeah, I would say that the movie is superficially a Western. (laughs) That's not an actual genre. Maybe like neo-Western is kind of a genre where it has all of these these features or these reminiscences of what Western movies are, but it, it kind of puts it in a more modern setting, but it's a Coen Brothers movie, so it also quickly breaks the convention and expectation of that. But, you know, you have a kind of cowboy character, a sheriff character, uh, you have bandits, you have a bounty hunter, and um, the way it all goes down is a crime, or I guess it is technically a crime, a drug deal, gone wrong. The Josh Brolin character, whose name is Moss, Llewellyn Moss, he's going to be our protagonist, our anti-hero, I think, in in many ways. Uh, He stumbles across this scene and deduces that there's got to be money somewhere. There's a bunch of dead bodies. He sees the drugs, and he kind of tracks down um, a suitcase that has about $2.4 million in it. At the same time, law enforcement, a sheriff named Ed Tom Bell, played by Tommy Lee Jones, is also uh, pursuing uh, this as, a, as an investigation. The third uh, essential character is uh, Javier Bardem's Anton Chigurh. And this is where conventions get a little bit broken because even though he is the villain versus kind of the sheriff and the cowboy, it's very unclear what he's all about. I don't want to get too into it right at the beginning, but it's very unclear what his motives are, what his background is, and it it leads to like a lot of head scratching and confusion as the film goes on, but he pursues Llewellyn Moss in an attempt to get this stolen money back. And there are several interested parties, the the Mexican drug dealers who were, you know, the original participants in this drug deal. Uh, there's uh, some kind of uh, American businessmen who are also involved in this. Uh, and, and I mean, that's the, those are the basics of the story. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward kind of crime gone wrong and pursuit sort of plot, so it seems. Is there anything yeah. you want to add? Yeah, no, Josh Brolin recovers this money from this massacre, and then he's chased by all the interested parties in it, I think, is just like kind of the, the the breakdown of it, right? He's got this $2 million. So both sides of uh, the transaction, the buyers and the sellers uh, are trying to get their money back and they hire hitmen to track down the money. Uh, and to where Anton Chigor is one of these hitmen. Um, and you have Tommy Lee Jones mm-hmm. trying to kind of piece that all together um, and who finds out that Lou Allen is in trouble through his wife. Um, and he is attempting... He's trying to make sure that Llewellyn doesn't get killed because he's mixed up in, in, in this bad thing. Yeah. Um, and he's wanting to recover this um, this thing that everybody wants in the movie, which is a bunch of money. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's basically it. Where do you want to start as far as like exploration goes with that? 
Yeah, I think of that because you hadn't seen this movie. I think like the best place to start this conversation off, and just because honestly, more than anything, um, I'm just generally interested. Like, what do you what do you think of the movie? And like, did you enjoy it? Did you find it? Just I guess you can give me your just general reaction to the movie. I think is valuable for the path that we'll try and go tonight. Sure. So, I mean, I go into it with a bias of like, okay, it's a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> I, I know it was like highly acclaimed. So I go in with the expectation that it's going to be very enjoyable. You know, I know I'm looking for what appears to be, you know, very clear and very real in its in its setting and and maybe even like a pretty straightforward plot that they're going to pull like a, some kind of switcheroo or something's going to get screwy. So So like I have certain expectations going into it. I found the movie and and the film's most captivating character, the villain Anton Chigurh, really confounding. Like just to just to watch it once, there's a lot that leaves you confused and asking lots of questions. And I think that's a great thing. I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was one of their best films that I've seen. The three main actors gave some of the best performances I've ever seen, if not the best performances. I I really liked it for. In many ways, it's realness. Again, like another feature of the Coen brothers, um, it, it's very clear where the film is happening and they do a really good job of capturing the setting. But it also has this this like unrealness to it that I noticed at the same time. Like the most powerful uh, character in the film, again, the villain, Shigur, is completely unreal. It's like, how is this a real person? And I think one of the most powerful moments in the film, this is, I don't really think this is any kind of a spoiler, is in all the realness and all the like the, the grit, it's like unapologetically real in many ways. The violence, the settings, the plainness of certain places. But one of the most powerful moments in the film is a character describing a dream for me, oh, yeah. which again is in the realm of the unreal, the imagined. That was one thing that I noticed just as it as it ran is that it seems to be playing with uh, reality in fiction or imagination or a dreamland or or something like that. And there's lots of visual cues that that help that out, too. Uh, but I'm sure we're going to we're going to talk about those. So, yeah, I, I was one of, uh, like I said, my favorite Coen Brothers movies that I have seen. Can I actually, that immediately brings to mind a scene like what you're talking about of like this blurring between um, fiction and reality. There's, there's some parts of it that are um, explicit. Like when, when, when a uh, bell is describing his, his dreams, his two dreams that he has to his wife. Right. Um, yeah. But I'll tell you the, there's a moment in this movie that sticks out to me that I'm always playing with in a way that I don't, I really like it and I don't know what it means. And I think, I think it should also be stated. It is totally okay and good and not at all a bad thing at all to not like fully grasp and comprehend things. Like there are like mysteries in life and there would be mysteries in film. Sure. Yeah. That I do think that the Coen brothers kind of as directors mess with in their movies. And I think that, there's a scene in particular that really, and we should just say like for, there's going to be spoilers all over the place and we spoil everything. So it, that's it. We're going to spoil everything. There is uh, the moment where Anton Sugar goes up into the American businessman from the other side of the drug dealer's office and shoots him immediately. Mm-hmm. So Sugar like uh, uses his little cattle prod thing 
knocks out the lock on a door and now he's in an office building and then you see him enter an office building and he shoots shoots a man who had sent another contract killer to kill him and to locate the money which uh as a point of principle for sugar is insulting you pick the right tool meaning that you had picked the right tool which is me there was no reason to bring this other person here uh and they've jeopardized my mission and i'm going to kill you for it right is this is this this kind of murder in the movie that's done by sugar out of out of the sheer principle yeah and there's an accountant in the office and he goes who are you sugar says who are you and he says i'm no one and they have this this kind of brief exchange um about a plot point which is about this woody harrelson's character carson and why he was involved and then this is the moment of the scene it's the end of the scene it's the button of the scene and it's there's this long dramatic pause after it again i don't know a hundred percent of why it's in the movie or what it's supposed to mean what i'm supposed to deduce from it but i just know that i like it and it's and it is the first thing that came to mind when you started talking about this but the accountant says you're going to shoot me that depends do you see me and then the scene ends right and I don't know if it's like a, a bit of like a, a red herring or if this is supposed to be something that's supposed to illustrate something in Shigur's character. Um, and the reason I say red herring is the bad guy is this supernatural force in a certain sense. Like, is he a demon? Is he the Grim Reaper? Um, is he evil personified, right? And it's like, you kind of get, I think that this gets busted at the end of the movie when he gets hit by a car. He gets hit by a car. He's like totally injured, totally mortal, pays a kid for the shirt off of his back so he can sling. Yeah. And then he walks away, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It, it Like just in breaking the convention of a Western, he is the only character who gets anything like a ride off into the sunset, you know, at the end. Oh, yeah. You're right. I mean, as you're watching it and as you're even like the shape of his head, like everybody has probably seen this very, at this point, iconic haircut that, that, and this was the most, the first time, yeah, that I think a lot of people had ever seen Javier Bardem and they were like, look at this fucking guy. Right. So then you, you see him in any other movie, even in the James Bond movie where he looks kind of ridiculous. It's like, Oh yeah, that's uh, I could see how this is a normal human being, but he has this like almost unhuman appearance and he is aside from some some very brief moments in the film entirely emotionless the times that he shows emotion uh it's usually just like a half smile uh there is one time where this is a scene we're going to have to talk about the coin flip with the gas station owner yep and this is one of his his moves it's almost like one of the rules that he puts on this this world that he inhabits is that there's a fairness to what he does and he flips a coin and says call it he doesn't say we're going to do a coin toss uh call it in the air he flips the coin and then once the 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 toss is over he covers it with his hand and he says call it almost like he already knows what it is and 
you know, there's this, so there's this scene, it's early in the movie where he's still being kind of like, we're still learning about what kind of a character this is. The problem is we're not learning shit because all of the times where he kills somebody or thinks about killing somebody or does this coin tosses, am I going to kill you or not? We're, we're just getting more confused by who he is and what he wants and what he's very enigmatic. But in that scene, Shigur says to him, you have to call it. It wouldn't be fair if I called it for you. And when the coin is flipped and when his hand goes down, he sighs almost what appears to be like, I don't a remorseful or stressed out kind of way, but it's a deep noticeable sigh. And it's one of the only times it's so noticeable um, him showing that emotion because he's so devoid of it in the rest of the film. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir, the most you ever lost on a coin toss? I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. You know what date is on this coin? No. 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now it's here. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say, call it. Well, look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything, call it. All right. Heads in. Well done. Every time he's on screen, he puts a massive amount of, of tension into the scene because as he's established through his appearances, like in the first and second act of the film, you don't know what he's going to do. He has no backstory. He has no motive. And, and yeah, you're, you're kind of left looking at it like, what is this guy supposed to be? Because he's not the villain in a Western, you know, like... Llewellyn Moss, the Brolin character, has a lot of these sort of, you know, more modern Western anti-hero kind of. He's cavalier. He's he's methodical. He's he's calm when he needs to be. He has a lot of those hero. And he's an amoral character. Yeah, yeah. Me- meaning, like sometimes he's good, sometimes he's bad. You know what I mean? Like he's morally gray, which is like places him in newer Western. You know, that places him in the the spaghetti western of like the good the bad and the ugly right is like clint eastwood is like he's not a white hat wearing good guy yeah there's a moral ambiguity to him it makes him into the archetype of a revisionist western hero yeah they give you two points to kind of like root for him or like him. The The first is like, he's just out poaching. He's out shooting deer or something. And he happens across this drug deal gone wrong where it's a bunch of dead bodies. And it's only this one alive guy bleeding to death in the backseat of a, a truck or sorry, a car. And um, the guy, he says to him, where's the last man standing? Where's the ultimo, uh, ultimo hombre? He says to this, this Mexican uh, drug gang guy. And the guy's just saying, agua, agua, just give me water. He goes, I don't have no agua. And he walks away. Now, you know, right there, it's like, ah, I'm not crazy about it. You know, 
should have brought out you should have agua anyway if you're out poaching in the middle of the desert like what's the there's a question why doesn't he have water with him but part of what contributes to this this sort of cumulative confusion as the film goes on so anyway you get a chance to like him or at least respect him in seeing how calm and methodical he is in that situation as he quickly puts himself like into the shoes of the drug dealers and it's like all right well if all this is happening and there's drugs there's money somewhere and then he tracks while kind of stopping and talking to himself like putting himself into the shoes of the person who escaped with the money and then finding the money so you see that there's like this competence to him that is in many ways heroic yeah and there's an adventurous spirit uh, in him as well that i think is like the thing you look for in a protagonist that you want to root for is he's like willing to chase down the last man because he knows there might be money right then he gives us another chance to like him a whole bunch more but it doesn't make any sense and again it just contributes to this growing confusion he wakes up in the middle of the night and he says okay and he goes and he feels, now this has got to be like eight, 10 hours later, who knows? Um, but it was daytime and now it's, it's at least five or six hours later. The guy is sleeping. Yeah. The guy who needed agua is dead. Uh, but he goes and he fills up a gallon, a plastic gallon bottle of water and he goes back to the scene. Yeah. Can I interject for a moment? Please do. Cause I'm confused. This is, I think the character's moral ambiguity is laid out for you. Right. And it's like, you contrast him to a character like bell, like if bell stumbled upon this crime scene, his first intuition wouldn't have been to track down the money so that he could keep it. Right. Right. Yeah. He is the white hat wearing good guy, your classic archetypal Western. He represents law and justice. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the sense of justice. And like you can imagine if Bell came upon the scene, the way he would have gone about this, uh, uncovering that scene would be a whole lot different. Right. But Llewellyn stumbles upon the scene, sees a gun that he likes. So he takes it, finds a man dying who's asking for help. And he says, No agua for you. Right. And he leaves this man here to die. And then he tracks down the last man. And he takes the money and he take and he's taking it for himself, right? He's going to take it home. Him and his wife are going to, you know, go live on an island somewhere. And they're just going to like, that's, that doesn't matter who died, whatever happened. Right. Forget about the notion of justice, right? Because there's like, there's been this like violent, horribly violent crime, right? Well, doesn't care about justice. The, the movie isn't about him, like finding out like who the good guys and who the bad guys were in that conflict and avenging the good guys or anything like that, or finding uh, the son of a, of a dead drug dealer who doesn't have a father or anything like that, right? Right. He goes and he's successful. He gets the money. He hides it and uh, he hides the guns he stole under the porch of his house. He brings the suitcase inside and puts it in his closet. And he's kind of messing around with his wife. And where'd you get that suitcase? At the getting place. But then he goes to bed and he's sleeping. Right. And, and what you're exactly describing is like he's earning your admiration as he went about his day or he went about this whole thing with his own self-interest at heart. And then he's laying in bed at night and he can't sleep. And he just stops rolling around in his sleep and he looks up at the ceiling and he goes, well, all right. Yep. That's it. And so like Lou Ellen goes and he fills up the thing of water, jug of water and uh, is 
White Fastenware is going. It's, uh, I, ha- I have something I have to do. All of this only works in retrospect, but it's like this is this man is demonstrating to us that this man is a man with a conscience and like a heart. Yeah. Right. So he's like going to bring, he's going to do something really stupid. And he says he's about to do something really stupid. And um, if I don't come home, tell mama, tell, tell mama I miss her. And she says, you know, your mom's dead. And he goes, oh, well, I guess I'll tell her myself. He goes back to the scene of the crime just to give this man some water. The amount of like cachet that has in creating a character who at the onset of it, like w- without this moment, and you're watching this movie. He just takes this money from these uh, these guys that have, all these guys that are dead. Um, if you don't like his affect, and you and you don't like his quips, his wife, um, you think he's just like a like a low life scavenger kind of. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And 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 this gesture, it's not like he's calling an ambulance for him. Right. It's not like he's trying to save his life. Right. It's like this is a thing where like dying man had like a deathbed request right yeah. like the, the water is not going to save that guy right yeah i don't think Ellen thinks the water is going to save that guy he's not going to him with a blood transfusion bag and a first aid kit right he's just going to offer him some water it's like he is honoring this this I don't know. The, 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 it's building this, like almost like a code of ethics or honor, and also like this kind of cachet for the audience to invest in Llewellyn as a character. And I think it's like incredibly effective. Like I think it's endear. It's like endearing to him. It, it makes him an admirable character, even though he might not be a totally like on the narrow. He's definitely not Bell. He's not a sheriff. He's not a deputy. He doesn't stand for justice. He just wants to get into this honeypot of like getting two million dollars, and he'll 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 probably kill three or four more men to just like get away with it. But at the same time, the reason he's not Shigar is that he was gonna accept the request of this dying man to just have have some water and relieve his pain before he goes and i think that like that goes incredibly far in the movie it does because it also like i said it's very interactive it's not like oh that's a nice gesture for a dying man you're watching it and you're going don't do this this doesn't make any sense obviously that guy is dead now why would you go back to such a dangerous place when you already like you're just going back to find a dead guy there. There's no there's no other way around that and you're jeopardizing your own life to do it. So it is the the one in the establishing a kind of honor, but at the same time it is it, it it's getting you involved with him in a really like curious way where all the characters do this. Now we, we got off on on uh Moss by talking about Shigor, but all three of the main characters defy expectations for what they are sort of archetypally, right? Villain, cowboy, or hero, or, you know, antagonist, protagonist, and then, like, the sheriff who's sort of, like, one step behind as the observer and, in many ways, the narrator. I think the book that the movie's based on is narrated by the sheriff character. It starts with his voiceover, and it ends with his, like, with his, with, like, this, like, inner monologue about him. And I think that that's something... I don't think it's actually particularly interesting, um, but like you can, we could, we could probably spend a good thirty minutes arguing about who is the protagonist of the film because um, it could very well be Bell. 
Uh, yeah, and but his the expectations, just like as far as the genre or what you think the genre is, are concerned. He's the sheriff, right? He's the sheriff of the county. And he comes across as he kind of like coats it over in a in a sort of sarcasm or, you know, the expected Tommy Lee Jones-ness of, of the character. But behind that, there's a lot revealed that he's apprehensive. He's fearful. He is always, it seems, almost intentionally. Sometimes he says as much. He's one step behind, right? He's one step behind his underling uh, in the sheriff's department when they're going to go into Moss's trailer after they they discover he was part of the scene of the crime and they go back to his house because his pickup truck is left there. I mean, the the other thing, too, about the, you know, uh, Llewellyn going back, he drives up in his truck. He gets out of his truck, walks down into this, uh, like, valley to give the guy water, and somebody comes up to basically, like, I don't know, like, rob his truck or take the tires off it or something and he has to flee um from them so his truck is then at the scene of the crime and that's what basically drives the rest of the story forward so it winds up making sense in the plot (laughs) it's it's necessary to the plot of the film to move forward but it doesn't make sense when you're watching him get out of bed and fill the jug of water like we already talked about so with bell bell is involved at this point and they go to his house, Bell and another person from the sheriff's department. He goes, you go in first. I'll hide behind. He says, I'll hide behind you. Right. So he's I mean, he is certainly the old man that this is not the country for. Right. That's very clear. hundred percent. Yeah. In his presentation. What did I say? Apprehensive, fearful, at times confused in that. And that's part of what he's saying is that, you know, the lawmen in this opening monologue that's like voiceover as this, the scene is basically set. The lawmen of old. And he says, my daddy was a lawman, my granddad, my uncle. Uh, you know, what would they think of this world of today? And then he sort of idealizes this past where lawmen, sheriffs uh, here didn't even used to have to carry guns. And again, like as the audience, you're going, is that true? The, on the on the Mexican border in West Texas? Like, isn't that what every country song where, that ends tragically, doesn't it take place right there? What sheriff did ever have to carry a gun? Right. You know, so again, you're you're confused by his whatever this is, this confused sounding introduction to the film. But then he is in the plot itself, always kind of like just a step or two behind where he needs to be to see the action. Um, There's examples later in the film that are very impactful, but the first one is tracking Shagur. Shagur, who becomes part of the hunt once the the money is missing, and it's it's still unclear to me like what he was doing there or who he's working for. You say that he's working for these these Americans. It just looks like a corporation, like the people who were, um, you know, buying the drugs. It looks like a skyscraper in Dallas. Like when when Shigur goes out of, um, you know, he becomes quite upset that Carson, the character played by Woody Harrelson, is is brought in as like a, almost like a backup, right? Because uh, the accountant says, you know, he thought that um, it's the way he says it too is kind of funny. He goes, uh, he feels, I mean, he felt because the guy's now dead. That having as many people looking for the money at once would be like the most the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. And Shigura gets really mad, and he says, "Wrong. You, you know, you 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 choose you choose the right tool for the job." 
Which is interesting, right? Because this is what, again, you're like, what the hell is this guy? What the hell is going on here? Who's involved in this thing? In between, uh, I think it's after the shootout when Llewellyn goes back to bring the guy water and the sheriff sort of, uh, the, the Sheriff Bell getting involved. There's this scene where these two guys pick up Shagur and bring him to this scene where this drug deal has gone wrong. The men hired by the guy he kills that hire Shagur. They're like almost underlings that hired a hitman to track down the money. They give him this device. Transponder. Yeah. Transponder. And he turns it on, he turns it off, and then he shoots the guys in the head. Two less guys, right? I'm the best tool. Okay, yeah. Then then that makes sense. So let's see. That was a very worthwhile tangent into the the three main characters and the ways they defy archetypes. But then that brings us back to Shigur and you ask some interesting questions like, what is he, right? We talked about his ridiculous hairdo. Um, As the film goes on, he becomes increasingly pale, right? Because he keeps getting injured. He gets shot at one point. He's also like very emotionless, even in dealing with pain or basically doing surgery on himself to remove a bullet in, in a bathtub or how he's able to obtain the supplies that he needs by blowing up a car outside of a, a pharmacy. Like just perfectly calculated, totally emotionless. And there's like lots of interesting things. Like I said, the parts of the film that I rewatched mostly today are the scenes with him because he seems to be this enigma in the film. And you're right. Like, is he representative of death in like a grim reaper kind of way? Is he some kind of idea? Is he imagined by Belle, the sheriff? These are all questions that you ask that obviously we're not going to be able to answer, but you notice things like he's not really there like in that line that you brought up when he goes in and he executes the the guy waiting for the money to be returned the guy who hired him and he shoots him right in front of another guy and the guy goes yeah i'm nobody i'm I'm an accountant are you going to kill me and he says that depends do you see me he's only ever noticeable to the people that he's directly interacting with right like nobody else ever seems to notice him except for the person who's directly experiencing him. 